You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. Well, it's summertime here in Canada where I'm recording, and you know, in summertime, we're always told to go outside and explore our national parks. But, you know, for all disabled people, exploring our national parks is just not accessible. Well, I want to tell you about a really cool event that's looking to change that. My friends at the Engineering Health Lab at the Kite Research Institute University Health Network are hosting a virtual conference on national park accessibility in Canada. This free event will take place from August 23rd through August 25th, 2022. The goals of this completely free event are What does national park accessibility look like to me and why is park accessibility important? What are the major barriers that impact national park accessibility for people with disabilities? And what are innovative solutions to improve park accessibility for people with disabilities? You know, I think this is such a great initiative and something you don't want to miss out on because we really need to be considering accessibility everywhere, even throughout our national parks in Canada. So to register for this free event, please head to www.parksaccessibilityconference.ca today. We call it slicking the bean, choking the chicken, giving yourself a hand, auditioning finger puppets. There's a million and one names for the old five-finger shuffle, and yet hundreds of millions of people are unable to sauce the taco due to disability, aging, or illness. That's where we come in, if you'll pardon the phrase. At Bumpin', we've created the world's first accessible sex toy, so people with limited mobility, hand issues, and disabilities can celebrate Palm Sunday just like everyone else. If you agree that everyone deserves sexual pleasure, help us spread the self-love and fund an orgasm for those in need. Give the gift of the big O at getbumpin.com. That's G-E-T-B-U-M-P-N dot com. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at Clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned.
This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on episode 301 of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm your disabled daddy, Andrew Gerza. Let us get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this episode started, shall we? First thing is first, just a quick reminder, if you want to support the show in any way, you can do that in one of two ways, actually. You can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and support us by pledging as little as $1 a month or $5 a month to keep the bright lights shining on this program or up to a yearly amount if that works for your budget also is available. You can do that and it would, I would really appreciate any support you can offer that way and for that support... You get the show one day early, completely ad-free. So consider pledging a monthly amount, if you're able, to keep this show going. Would mean a lot. Also, you can pledge by leaving a review wherever it is you get your podcasts. Tell us why the show's great, tell us why you listen, and tell us why Disability After Dark is important to you. Before we dive into the episode today, just a quick reminder that you can also sign up for the podcast within a podcast that I do here. Sometimes I do special series like Quarantine and Chill, and right now I'm doing a series called This Shit is Real, where I talk to guests all about their gastro health and poo and disability and how their disability and poo affects them and all those things. So if you're somebody living with a gastrointestinal issue and who has a disability and who wants to talk about all those things together... Come on this special series with me. You can email us at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com using the subject line, This Shit Is Real. But I want to find out how poo affects you. So sign up for that as well. But now, on to today's episode. On the show today, for episode 301, I sit down with somebody that I was really, really so much fun to interview. I sit down with my friend Ashley B. Jacobson, who is a disability rights lawyer with a disability. How cool is that? And I loved doing this episode because when I was in school, even before I went to school, I always loved talking about the legal system and learning about the legal system and just having that whole discussion. And I, I wanted to go to school for law. Of course, things didn't turn out that way. I went to school for a master's of legal studies, but I never continued on for law school because I wanted to, you know, become famous and do what I do now. But I, but for a while there, 
I wanted to do law and disability. And so talking to Ashley today was really important. We talk about her experience with disability, living with lupus, and interstitial cystitis. We talk about catheters and bathrooms and inaccessibility in law school. We talk about the need for more disability rights lawyers with disabilities. We talk about ableism in the law, so many different things, and this was such a fun, important conversation that delves into disability and law, and I think more of us need to talk about the law and disability. And so I was really excited to sit with Ashley B. Jacobson, a disabled lawyer with disabilities, and she tells us how disability affects every part of our legal system. And I thought that was really important. So we're going to talk all about that today. We recorded this last June, and I'm so happy that it's finally coming out. I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here's my interview with Ashley Jacobson, disability rights lawyer with a disability, right here on Disability After Dark. Ashley Jacobson, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited. Um, I was reading over your, we have so much that we're going to cover today. There's so many things we could talk about today. I didn't even know where to start. So I'm going to pull up my questions and then we'll go. But in the meantime, could you just introduce yourself a little bit to the Disability After Dark audience? Sure. So I... I'm a disabled woman living with autoimmune disease. I have lupus and other chronic illnesses that mainly affect my mobility, my energy, my balance, things like that. Um, And I also am a disability rights attorney, and I have a background in disability rehabilitation counseling before I became a lawyer. So personally and professionally, disability is kind of always on my mind. (laughs) And I'm really lucky because I've been able to create a career where I'm able to take care of my health and my disabilities and also kind of pursue my ambitions, which has been great and serve the disability community, which has been so, um, you know, this community has been so helpful for me over the years. Um, And so, yeah, my perspective is kind of unique in that you know, I personally have been through disability. I'm still going through it. And I've been disabled for the last 11 years. And, um, you know, I think it really provides some perspective in what I do at work, too. Yeah, totally. I mean, and for sure it would. Uh, and, you know, I studied I studied law from a master's of arts degree. And I studied the law on the disabled when I my master's. But I, I've never actually met a disabled disability lawyer before, so that's cool. Um, and I'm excited you're here. But I want to kind of back up a little bit and just ask you, like you mentioned that you have a whole host of disabilities we can talk about. But I want to learn from you, what are your disabilities, if you could like name them for us, and how would you say they impact your day-to-day life? Sure. So I have lupus, which is an autoimmune disease that um, causes a lot of joint pain, um, stomach pain, nausea, fatigue, um, headaches, kind of it runs the gamut. And then I also have 
interstitial cystitis, which is a bladder disease that significantly affects me. It's incredibly painful in my abdominal area. I, I use catheters. I've used catheters since I was 23 um, and I'm 33 now. Um, and so I- Aren't they great? Don't we love catheters? They're yes. so awesome. I use you know, them too. So I, I know the joys. Yeah, you get it, right? But it's just, um, it was something that like many aspects of disability that are new, um, especially for, for me, I was non-disabled for the first 20 years of my life. And so when I thought of, you know, catheters and things like that and other medical devices too, like it was so overwhelming to me at first. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's going to be so painful. I'm going to hate it. I can't believe I have to do this. I'm so young. Um, and, you know, I battled some internalized ableism with that a bit at first. Um, but I will say that catheters have provided so much more freedom for me, where at first I was having to go to the hospital, like to just be cast. And so, you know, learning how to use catheters myself, not only allowed me to have the freedom to use them at school and at work and at home, um, but it also allowed me to do at home bladder treatments that I used to have to drive an hour and a half each way to go do at the doctor's office and things like that. So, you know, I'm a big fan of catheters now. <laughs> So they're not the most comfortable thing always. <laughs> yeah, certainly not the most comfortable thing. And I like using them myself now for almost five years. Like I hated them too when I got them. I went through a lot of internalized ableism. My urethra bled for like a year when I when I first oh, started yeah. using them. And I was terrified every other day to pee because I was like, what's gonna happen today? I don't know. Like it was never, ever, ever fun. And, and also like you talked a second ago about, about nausea and about like uh, stomach pain. I live with IBS and like yeah. some other stuff because of CP and like, it's even today, even right now that we're talking and we're, I'm good, but it's also like, yeah, the tummy doesn't, it's not happy. Yeah. And it's so interesting because so many of like different health conditions and disabilities affect the stomach and the abdominal area. And um, a lot of them overlap. And I know for me, that led to me being misdiagnosed at first. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, we, I finally found great doctors who took the time to actually do the correct testing and surgeries. And, and so that led to the interstitial cystitis, which I had never even thought of a bladder disease. You know, like I said, I was 20 years old. All I knew was my stomach hurt really low in my abdomen. And so, um, you know, it, it, it was a process, but ultimately I was diagnosed with lupus interstitial cystitis, which is the bladder condition. And then also endometriosis. There's again, there's so much, there's so many different things going on there all at once. There's a lot to deal with. Um, as a as a disabled person, whether you're born disabled or whether you become disabled, that's a lot to deal with. Um, I wanted to ask you more about the 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 bladder stuff because, like, how does that like how does having a bladder disease impact? Like, you know, we talk so much about the right for disabled people to use the bathroom, but when you have a disease where I'm assuming you need to pee a lot more or like you know you need to release a lot more. How does, how does inaccessibility of toileting affect Uh, that? Yeah, that is such a great question. And I feel like I could talk about that all day long. 
Um, so for me with the bladder disease, I, I get ulcers on my bladder, which are painful. I have to follow a really restrictive low acid diet. I have in experimental medical device that I got surgically implanted in a study 10 years ago at the university of Michigan that helps manage my pain. Um, but, and I actually just had it replaced, uh, the, the part needed to be, I had two parts that needed to be replaced, um, in that device. So I had surgery back in November for that. Um, and that really, fun. Helps a lot. yeah, <laughs> it helps a lot with managing my pain, um, but it doesn't remove the pain. And so it allows me to do things like drive and work, but I still have to be very strategic because I, it doesn't address things that well with like urgency and frequency. And so with interstitial cystitis, um, it's commonly referred to as IC because interstitial cystitis is just like the longest thing ever. Um, but I, I, without, well, I guess in, in my typical day, um, it's probably, I'm using the restroom anywhere from, 17 to 20 times during the day. And then at night, wow. even more than that. And when my medical device wasn't working properly, because I fell like, you know, in March of 2020, and then I couldn't get my surgery to get it replaced because of COVID for like six, seven months. Um, you know, I was going to the bathroom over 60 times a day. And wow. so I'm lucky that I work for myself. I am able to you know, really customize my schedule and, you know, organize things so that I'm able to go to the bathroom when I need to. But luckily with catheters, I have been able to really schedule out where I'm emptying my bladder using a catheter before I have any hearings that I have for like going to court and things like that. Um, But I'm always thinking and planning about, okay, should I go to the bathroom now or should I wait? five minutes or can I wait five minutes? And it definitely, especially at first, there was a level of anxiety about it because, you know, people looking at me, they don't think they might not think that I have anything going on health wise. Um, so, you know, and a lot of people, I'm sure that like, you've heard this before in the disability community, a lot of times people say, Oh, well, you're so young to have to deal with this, you know? Um, and so it was something that I had to really wrap my mind around. Um, but it, it really causes a lot of pain, a lot of abdominal pressure, um, catheter usage. And then I use catheters to inject a series of medications into my bladder on a weekly basis. And those are not covered by insurance. So they're quite costly, which is frustrating. Um, but I have gotten really, really good about managing my fluid intake and scheduling when I need to cath um, throughout the workday so that I'm able to work without interruptions as much as possible. And I mean, that's as somebody who also has to manage their intake because I work myself, I will tell you, I do not drink enough water. Because I don't either. I ha- it's like I have to worry about how I'm going to pee. And if I have to pee, can somebody like, unlike you, I need somebody to help me with the catheter. So, yeah, which is fine. But if they don't get here fast enough, am I going to be suffering with a full bladder and then having having abdominal pain and having to pee and all this stuff if somebody won't get here in time? Yeah, that's that's 
a level of that definitely adds a level of anxiety. And I know, um, you know, I, there are so many concerns with that. And I, for me, the way that it's affected me, um, some of the negative ways that it's affected me is that, you know, when I was in graduate school, um, and, and I have hand tremors too. So from the, from the chronic pain that I have, one of the effects of that is that I get hand tremors and feet tremors, especially if my pain is bad. And so I really have those on an almost daily basis and which I'm sure makes self-cathing super easy for you. (laughs) Yeah. Let's just, it's, it's sometimes quite painful. Um, but I, I've learned to, um, I, it sounds, you know, funny, but I've learned to kind of work with the tremors in when I use catheters, but, um, but when I was in grad school, for example, I needed more room with my tremors to use catheters, um, especially when I was first learning how to use them. But my classes were on the second and third floors of the building, and there weren't disability accessible restrooms on, on those floors. So then I would have to go, I would have to leave the classroom. It would take me like 10 minutes to get to an accessible bathroom where I have enough room to tremor and cat at the same time. And I actually wound up writing to the president of the university and saying, listen, I'm paying to be here and I'm missing out on significant class time because I need an accessible restroom and there aren't any on the, on the floors that my classes are on. Um, So that has been a struggle, but then also like social things, you know, like that, like going to football games in college, like there weren't accessible places to go to the bathroom and, um, you know, just in, in, in air airports and on planes and, um, you know, I'm always so bathroom conscious, like anywhere I go, I need to know where the closest bathroom is. Oh yeah. Me too. For my IBS and for my cathing, I'm like, I just basically like, and you know, it starts to affect your desire to want to go out. Cause you're like, well, I just yeah. guess I'll stay home because it's just easier. If something happens, at least I'm, I'm safe. Like I have a date on Friday and I'm excited but I'm also like okay I don't know how to feel about this because I gotta leave my house and, and you know for me it's a bit different because at least where I live like there's care involved right. so the minute I leave my house I don't have that care anymore yeah it definitely is daunting it's like super and I can remember I remember being like 20 22 23 I wanted to go to all the social stuff and wanted to be included but I could never do it because I was like what am I gonna pee right and it, it really is like, even I remember anytime I go anywhere, like traveling and I don't travel very often, especially I haven't with COVID, but you know, before COVID, when I would travel, it was so difficult because being in the car really agitates my bladder, causes yep. my pain to get worse. And it messes with my joint pain from the lupus and stuff. Um, but then flying is just like a whole other battle because my medical device that helps manage my pain doesn't work in airports because of all the like electrical activity. Oh no. So I, you know, I use a wheelchair in, in the airports, but then you're kind of stuck using the airport's wheelchair service. And if they're running late, then you're worried you're going to miss your flight. Like there's just so many things that go into it that especially non-disabled people don't even think about. Yeah. I would never even consider. Um, I want to talk way more about your experience as a disability rights lawyer who's disabled because I think that's so cool. And like, why haven't we made an Allie McBeal type show about you? <laughs> Somebody should make that a show. Uh, but, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that. So actually tell me just kind of your experience. Like, 
were you in school? Was it was like disability rights law obviously something you wanted to do, or or did that come after you acquired disability? So I acquired disability my senior year of college. Um, I actually had to finish college unexpectedly all online. And this was like before online classes were common (laughs) Yeah. Um, because I was in the hospital so much. And so I was in the hospital at that point, at least two days a week. And um, I was in a lot of pain and uh, they couldn't figure out for a while what was going on. And so I finished college online and then it was, it's so funny looking back on it, but at the time I didn't connect the dots. I wound up going to graduate school for rehabilitation counseling. And so I'm learning about disability from a counseling perspective while I'm learning about it personally, as I'm new to dealing with it myself. Um, And so I was, I went to grad school and I loved it. And then I worked for a university running a program for adults, you know, who are attending college and they're looking for like kind of a support group network of people who understand and also have disabilities. And then I wound up working for a nonprofit organization where I had a counseling caseload of maybe, you know, 80 to 90 disabled adults, wide variety of disabilities, and they were, you know, in the workplace. So trying to make sure that they got the accommodations that they deserved at work and also helping make sure that they were referred to any services that they needed or desired and that they were able to live as independently as they desired. And so I was doing that and I enjoyed it But then um, I had, over the course of a week, I had three clients who dealt with legal issues. And these issues were gravely mishandled by the legal system very quickly. And so, what's that? Not surprising in the least. Yeah, exactly. Not surprising. And so I had, um, you know, my mom is a lawyer, but she does like divorces. So you know, different, totally different beast of law. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the the one client that really stood out to me, so I had, I had a client who has a legal guardian, um, but the police questioned him without his legal guardian present and really put him in a bad position where they were trying to get him to admit to things that he didn't do. Um, I had another client who was dealing with uh, her partner who was, you know, there was domestic violence and she was having difficulty with the police enforcing a restraining order. They weren't really taking her seriously because of the way that she spoke. Um, they didn't realize that she had a disability that affected that. And then I, the final straw for me in that week was I had a client who um, was attacked and called the police for help. And when the police showed up, they arrested this client instead of the person who attacked her and um, because they assumed based on the way that she communicated that she was disorderly and intoxicated, even though she wasn't. Um, yeah. And so I was like, you know what, enough. I'm just going to sign up for the LSAT and see what happens. Um, and so, you know, about, I think a couple months later, I took the LSAT. And then two months after that, I started law school. <laughs> and wow. so, um, it was always my goal to do disability rights. And I knew I, you know, living with disability is not always pretty, as you know, it's not always fun, it's not always fair, but I do feel like one of the benefits of me going through what I have is that I have more of an understanding of what 
many of my clients go through. And I also wanted to change the legal profession and how they view disability overall and how they treat people in the system. So it was always my goal. And I just love being able to do kind of what I set out to do. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really cool, like that you can sit across from a client in your wheelchair who, you know, who's probably expecting a non-disabled lawyer, but has no idea what this is all about, doesn't understand the system. And then you come in and they're like, okay, I can take a breath. They understand what it feels like to be horribly discriminated against by our legal system. And then she can help me. Yeah, I hope so. You know, I still keep an open mind that, you know, I'm always aware of the fact that my experience with disability is my own. And so, you know, when clients come in, I want to be like, I'm here for you. I know I can relate to some of the stigmas that are used um, against people like me. And so I have kind of that, that empathy that I think a lot of lawyers are missing, but I also have the disability background enough to know that, you know, most lawyers have zero training in anything disability related. They hear disability and law. And And they they think think liability. Yeah. Or they think, oh, well, I don't want to practice social security benefits like that area of law. And I'm like, no, no, no. It affects every part of the legal system. Every legal specialty is affected by this when, you know, you're not making the documents accessible to the client. Like that should be the bare minimum, you know, but that should be, that should be before the minimum. It should just be expected that that happens. Yeah. 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 Um, how do you think, like, what are some of the things that are disability rights issues that people don't think are disability rights issues? Yeah, so when it comes to disability rights, the main issues that I see involve um, workplace or school discrimination. So if you have, uh, maybe you're in school, you're in college, and you are new to campus, you meet with, you know, the disability resource office on campus, and they're like, oh, there's not really a whole lot we can do for you. Um, So, you know, good luck, you're on your, your own. Um, And so for me, it's really a lot of analyzing accommodations, what accommodations are reasonable to make school accessible for you so that you're not facing as much discrimination. And then if professors or schools aren't providing those accommodations, advocating and fighting for those to be enforced. Um, I also see that a lot with workplace discrimination. um, And lately I've been seeing a lot of housing based discrimination um, where disabled people are denied housing by a landlord because they have a service animal or they're denied or they're they're kind of sub subjected to ridiculous lease violations because you know they're annoyed that this person with a disability requested accommodations and they don't want to provide them so wow, you know it's so petty just, it's so like childish so petty. wow <laughs> it's so petty yeah um you know, in Canada, we have similar issues and we're also fighting with, in Canada, we just passed Bill C-7, which is a law that basically says that Canadian doctors can make it easier to suggest that disabled people should end their lives rather than being given accommodation. So I don't know if they have anything like that in the States. I don't think so, but it just got quietly passed in Canada a few months ago. And when it happened, we were all like, what the fuck is this bullshit? 
Like, right. What though? I I would say I can't believe that, but I, I do totally believe it because you know it's nothing will surprise me um, about how people mistreat disabled people. Um, but I in the U.S. we don't have something that's like that. But what we do have is a huge problem in people who violate our disability rights laws being held accountable. And so yeah. you know we've got these great broad protective laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act or the Fair Housing Amendments Act. But then when people are mistreated or discriminated against, they think, well, I don't want to pursue an expensive lawsuit or I don't even know. There's no lawyer that does this. Like in my area, geographically, there are literally no other lawyers that practice this area of law. And so that's a huge problem. Like, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, people really don't know where to turn and they don't know what the next step is. And they don't know that there are affordable options that usually resolve the situation before a lawsuit is even considered. Um, And so that's a lot of my practice is preventing lawsuits and getting it settled or resolved as quickly as possible. um, Because it's, it's such a huge problem because otherwise people just say, well, there's nothing I can do. I guess I'm just going to have to be evicted or there's nothing I can do. They fired me based on my disability, but I guess I'll look for another job or, you know, I'll figure it out. Um, And so I would love for there to be more laws where there are strict procedural options for holding violators accountable. Um, And so I would say that's a huge gap in the U.S. right now, that and also people on disability benefits, um, one, don't get a lot of money. They don't have marriage equality and all of that. Oh, I could sit with you and talk about the marriage equality one for like six hours. I have so yeah. many feelings about that. And, you know, it's disturbing that this is it's a, this is an international problem. Like it happens in the UK. It happens in Canada. Basically, all the systems are like, oh, you want to have a relationship? Yeah, you can't do that. Sorry. Right. Yeah, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, I... I I was noticing a trend towards more awareness and more people in the general public understanding how flawed it is. But, um, you know, in the last few years, I've also seen a lot of misunderstanding and judgment from, you know, certain groups of people that they think disabled people shouldn't be entitled. I hear that word entitled a lot to benefits or to, well, if they really want the benefits, then they just won't get married. And it's like, this is an equality issue. This is a human rights issue. You know, it's not about the money. It's about dignity and respect and love and that equality. And if we don't have that equality in our international world, but especially in each country, um, you know, the disability community is going to have to fight that over and over and over again. Do you hope as a disability lawyer that we will start seeing ableism as more of a hate crime? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of especially non-disabled people misunderstand the word ableism. Um, You know, for me, ableism should be punishable in a wide variety of avenues. So like, I see ableism happen to my clients in the workplace all the time. I've dealt with it in the workplace and in schools and in law school and by the board of law examiners. And um, there were no consequences. You know, even when you report it and they say, oh, I'm sorry that you went through that. There's no 
punishment or repercussions at all. Um, And so I think that there should be mandated responses that one, you know, entities and companies have to pursue, but especially when it comes to our criminal justice system, that's a huge hole that has not been filled. And kids with a lot of different kinds of disabilities are being put into the system by, you know, teachers, family members, um, you know, judges, other lawyers, without realizing that disability can very much affect how we interpret behavior. And so when we push a kid into the juvenile justice system, for example, we're punishing that kid for exhibiting disability symptoms that maybe their non-disabled peers show and don't have a lot of repercussions for. Um, and so then we've got the school to prison pipeline that happens. And then, you know, they, the prisons in the United States are filled with people with disabilities. And, um, you know, they many of them have dealt with disability discrimination at the hands of investigators, police, um, prosecutors, and, you know, frankly, judges um, that I think should also be punishable and able to be corrected legally where they're, you know, either changing sentencing or, or things like that. But we've got such a long way to go when it comes to holding people accountable for disability discrimination. And the huge hole that I see also in when it comes to like hate crimes, because you, you brought up that kind of specifically. Yeah. Is, is that um, when it comes to hate crimes, they report on all of these categories, right? And they should keep those statistics and be aware of those. So hate crimes based on race, religion, nationality, things like that. But whenever I look up reports for disability-related hate crimes, um, that information or those statistics usually aren't even recorded or kept. And so one of the things that I've done is provided free trainings to prosecutors' offices, police departments, not that they always take me up on that offer, um, but just those trainings that can really heighten their alertness to disability affecting somebody being targeted. Yeah. Yeah. And I, first of all, don't give them for free charge for that shit. (laughs) Uh, I know I uh, really should. But then I wonder like when you do those trainings, what are your responses from the, say for instance, the police station? It varies. Usually, though, I have to say I'm quite disappointed. Um, one of the with the main focuses that I have when I do those types of trainings is, okay, it's all great to bring somebody like me in um, to talk about these things, but I want to see concrete steps. Like, I'm not going to, going to associate with a department that's just parading me in to be that token disabled person. I'm going to do like a DEI initiative type of presentation And then I leave and then everyone feels good about themselves because they've checked that box. Like that's not what I do. And so I provide really concrete strategies for really breaking down. Okay. When you get a 911 call, we need to train the dispatchers on how they record and interpret and relay information to officers that are being directed to the scene. Like they, I need specifically for people to know that if a 911 dispatcher tells a police officer, you know, something like, 
this person's showing aggression, they are mentally ill, and they are all over the place. Like the way that they report that to officers who show up on the scene has a direct impact on how that person is treated, and it could potentially affect their safety and their life. Their life. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I really break down step by step how they need to analyze it. But then I also follow up with them like a couple of months later. And I just really um, kind of bug them until I feel like they have done something to change the way that they approach these things. Um, because, you know, I, I think especially in the last two years, there's been a lot of awareness about, you know, with a lot of police brutality cases, especially BLM stuff is on a huge spike because of all the stuff that happened there. Um, Black people with disabilities are being incarcerated and murdered at a huge higher rate because of of exactly what we're talking about. Um, So yeah, I completely agree that we need to, they need to do more. Um, What I would love to see in the police everywhere is have a disability squad, have a disability like, team of people that their only job is to go out when a disabled person is you know quote unquote showing aggression or whatever the call is bring in your like run-of-the-mill officer but also bring in a disability support team to be like oh we think this person might have x disability how do how can we come can we come along on the call to support you yeah and, and I think that's a great idea. Some areas in the U.S. have already started kind of putting together what they, they call these crisis teams in many places. Um, I'm still, I'm optimistic about that, but I'm also cautious to recommend um, to like my clients' parents or my clients' family members to call those crisis squads um, because often So for example, um, I have one client who has, uh, he's autistic, he's black, and he is non-speaking. And so his family members were like, well, in our area, they have a crisis team where they say you call them and they'll send a counselor, like a mental health professional to the scene to hopefully help, which is a great thing. And I think that's very positive, but yeah the way that the the area had set it up was even if you call the crisis team, the first person that always shows up on the scene is a police officer. And so it's like kind of, it doesn't defeat the purpose, but in a, in a real true crisis, it's like that officer, if you know, could still show up and potentially kill this person. Yeah. Yeah. It's super not safe. But what I was thinking was like, have a team of disabled people who you, who are police officers like have a wheelchair using police officer. Yeah. Have an autistic police officer. Have like a blind police officer. Like, like I know it almost sounds like you know you're putting together like a disability Avengers team, but that's literally what <laughs> they they should do. Like have somebody with all different kinds of lived experience on a team, so that when somebody who you think has a disability, you know, if something goes on, they can be the first on the scene too. I totally agree. I would love that. I would love to see that happen. And I would love for, so less than 1% of all lawyers have disabilities that are documented that we know of. I'm sure that number is actually higher because people don't always realize that their condition qualifies as a disability. Um, 
but it's still a very, very low number. And part of the reason with that is because of, of course, hiring discrimination, but also because there are, there's so much ableism that you face in law school. And when you take the bar exam, um, when it comes to accommodations being unjustly denied and things like that, that there are all these hurdles put in their way. And so such a huge part of our legal system, when the police are involved, it involves prosecuting attorneys, like district attorneys who have a lot of say, not only when it comes to crime, but when it comes to like a child cases, like cases that involved alleged child abuse and neglect. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen instances where prosecutors are pursuing a case against a parent because they have a disability and there's really not a whole else lot there. Um, And so the prosecutors, I would love to see more prosecuting offices have disabled lawyers in it um, because I think that would make a huge difference. And I think like the disabled A team to show up in crisis would just be like, such a value to the community i mean how cool would that be to have a disabled prosecutor like it would be amazing would change the game entirely because then when the other prosecutor says oh i think johnny's abusing his kid because he's in a wheelchair and his kid's not the other lawyer can go what's the problem here oh he's just got disabilities yeah it's fine don't worry about it right well like i so i you know sometimes work on those cases and It's so interesting because um, I started working in a new county over the pandemic and it was all over Zoom Um, and nobody knew that I just, they couldn't see my cane. They couldn't see, you know, my tremors because, you know, behind a screen, it's a tiny little box. So they they don't know really anything that I have a disability. And so um, the other day I went to the courtroom for the first time in person in this county And um, it's just so funny to see people's reactions because they'll say, I heard uh, one person say uh, like a foster parent type of role talking about a biological parent who was trying to reunify with their kids. um, And they said, well, we don't want to return the kids to them because they have disabilities. And then I'm walking in in my cane, like what? (laughs) And then people are like, oh, wait. I mean, I don't mean we it like mean, that. Yeah, we didn't mean it like you. We meant like a real disabled person. Right, right. And, and so I think that there's some benefit to just even having disabled people in those spaces. Um, but again, there needs to be a lot more of us. I would love for there to be many, many more disabled lawyers out there in all types of law. I was going to, I was, I was encouraged by my law professor and my master's to go to law school but I was like fuck it I want to do something I'm a I'm a star I want to do something more like I want to do like disability justice activism yeah Um, and and you know that's why I didn't go because but I also thought like we don't have we don't have enough you're right we don't have enough disabled lawyers we don't have enough people with lived experience challenging the law because let's face it the law was designed for all able-bodied white men to get away with crime basically so like totally so so yeah i mean i you know part of me wishes that i'm that i could do that again and part of me is glad that i didn't because now i'm doing what i get to do now but i certainly if anybody out there wants to 
go to law school and become a disabled lawyer? Um, I say yes to that. Yeah. And reach out to me too. If, if, if you're interested in that and listen, Andrew, it's never too late. You know, I mean, I went to law school after, you know, I got my master's. I'd been working for a long time. My mom went to law school in her thirties. Um, and so, you know, she had three kids by the time she went to law school. Um, and so it's never too late, but I also have a, a mentorship program called Legally I was just gonna, Abled. I was just about to ask you all about that. So yeah, tell me all about Legally Abled. Abled yeah. Right? So I, I started it because frankly, I, I dealt with, I, my law school was great in many ways. Most of the professors and deans were incredible understanding. They accommodated me no problem. They made everything accessible, but there were a couple of people um, who were higher up in the law school who did not handle my um, disability appropriately. There were some rude comments made. They, um, I had a, an exam where I had accommodations that had been approved because of my hand tremors. I needed to type out essays on exams um, yeah. and my laptop, the, the day I brought my laptop for the exam, the exam room's internet wasn't working. And so they had two, two separate desktop computers that were connected to the internet that nobody was using that are set up specifically for exams in the next room. They just still wouldn't let me use it. So they made me handwrite the exam because they said, if I didn't, I would get a zero. And so I spent, yeah. So I spent like, I mean, hours writing out this exam, the essay. And in the last five minutes, I had to just guess on literally all of the multiple choice questions in the section. Oh, no, that's horrible. It was terrible. And, and I, I, you know, I left and I was just pissed. So I, I, I emailed every dean at the school. I emailed the accommodations director and I said, this is ridiculous and it's not legal. And so I met with a bunch of deans and they kind of tried to like appease me and you know, say, oh, let's, you know, we're so sorry, but let's move on. Um, and I had one dean in particular who said to my professor, oh, she's probably just mad because she didn't do well on the exam. And the funny thing was, I had guessed all of the multiple choice questions right by pure luck, literally Amazing. all of them. Well, obviously. So I got the highest grade in the class. <laughs> and so that she told him that and he said, oh, well, if she did so well, what's she complaining about? And I'm like, just because I happened to get lucky and guess right, I still had my rights violated. Um, and so I, it took a lot of meeting with professors and changing their the way they thought about disability. Um, but then by the time I went to take the bar exam, I knew that the board of law examiners, they're very, very, very restrictive about what accommodations they approve. They unnecessarily and inappropriately assess accommodations based on how well you do in comparison to other students so that's ridiculous example, what like that's so that's right. not an accommodation that's you playing favorites because you're bored on it like what 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 i know and they they truly i think the crux of it is they don't understand what the purpose of an accommodation actually is which is unacceptable the purpose um, of an accommodation is to level the playing building in that case to make you you yeah, well, and have the same opportunity as someone else would. Right. It's just removing unnecessary barriers so that it's more accessible and less discriminatory. I mean, that's literally all it is, but they view it as special treatment still. So I've had to really battle that special treatment myth and mentality throughout my career. Um, but especially with the, the 
bar exam, I showed up on the day of the test. I had my accommodations approved. I had to submit, I mean, a huge packet of paperwork to get these accommodations for the bar exam, but then they were approved. So I think, oh, I'm good, right? I show up on the day of the test. It's a two-day test. It's like six to eight hours each day of testing. It's brutal. And each testing session, they say, oh, what do you mean you have accommodations? They forgot to plan for them. Oh, no. Come on. Really? Yes. So I had to fight with the proctor for 20 minutes at the start of each testing session on the most stressful test of my life already. Oh, no. And so, again, I'm sure a little bit by luck, but also because I knew I just had a feeling that they would discriminate against me. So I over prepared for the exam, like where my classmates were studying eight hours a day. I was studying 13 hours a day. I was like, I no matter what, I don't want to have to take this test again. And so I I passed luckily, but it still was such a traumatic experience for me because I mean, the the testing coordinator for the bar exam literally laughed in my face when I told her I'm an accommodation specialist. My master's degree is in this. I'm telling you, you guys approve these accommodations. Here is the form showing I have the accommodations. You need to provide them. And she just laughed in my face. The- <laughs> literally just laughed in my face. Wow. And then after the exam, I went, I was like, who do I even report this to? Because there's no real oversight for the board of law examiners. So the only person yeah. I could report it to was the governor of Michigan. And the governor's like, oh, okay, that, we're really sorry. That's terrible. But then like nothing was done about it. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to create legally able to just immerse the legal profession with disabled lawyers, because we need more of us to change that attitude, but then also to be in each of these rooms and each of these states and say, listen, that's not what accommodations are for. This is what they are. You need to provide them to me. And so I, you know, I, anybody who's interested in working in the legal profession at all, maybe it's as a paralegal, a legal secretary, a lawyer, uh, maybe you want to be a judge someday. If you have a disability, just reach out to me. You can be part of the program. I meet with, you know, everybody periodically on Zoom or by phone, or you can check in with text. I can help you, you know, apply for accommodations for tests in law school um, because it's hard to go through on your own. Do you wish that we would just abolish uh, accommodation, like abolish the need for like such a punitive process to get accommodations? Do you wish that somebody could just say, hi, my name's Andrew and I have CP and I will cry or these accommodations, can you please make sure they're there? Like, do you wish it could just be that simple? I do. I I wish it could be that simple. I don't ever see it being that simple, though, because of the attitude where people assume that people are trying to game the system. You know, a lot of non-disabled people still have that special treatment mentality. So I think it's going to take a really long time for to reverse that stigma that we're not trying to cheat anybody. We're just trying to remove discriminatory barriers that were put in our way by people who literally just don't understand disability. Um, so I, I would love and, for it to be as simple as that, but I, I think it will be a long time before people just say, this is what I need and it's provided. Like I just think, and I also looking, because I had, I I did the same thing, not on the same scale, but when I did have my master's and a bunch of exams, all that stuff. And I remember thinking, like, actually at the time I didn't think, but now I'm thinking, like, why did an able-bodied person get to sign off on whether or not I 
got right? accommodations. Like, and they had they had a wheelchair using person in the disability office in my college, and she was great. But I was also like, you only have the one. So right. Every time there was an issue, we go to this one who again was great and did her job just fine. But like, maybe there would be another one that had a different perspective that we should have, you know, that they should have gone to. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, hopefully if we can address discrimination in hiring and employment, um, that because that's also a huge hurdle to disabled people getting into all of these different spaces. And I think that would be one of the main things that we need to address to change that. But I mean, the thing is, there's, there are disabled people in all different types of jobs, um, but there's not a lot of awareness of that being the fact or that being true. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of room for growth in if you choose to spread awareness about your disability, there are many different ways that you can do that. Um, Not that anybody's required to, but it just, um, I hope that in the future, inclusion, accessibility, um, these are just standards that everybody really enforces um, because it's better for everyone overall. It's better for schools. It's better for businesses. Everybody benefits. So like, what's the big deal? Just provide yeah. the accommodations. Yeah, they just provided so that we can all get, we can all move on with our lives. Um, what was it like for you coming out uh, publicly about being disabled what has that journey been like for you doing that yeah it's been I would say I'm naturally more of an open person than a lot of people um I'm I'm a talker and so I at first when I first became disabled I also think it was one of my greatest blessings that I was so open about it even though it wasn't very well received by a lot of people um, non-disabled people, I should say. So when I first got sick, I knew nobody else with health issues. I knew, certainly knew nobody else who was my age or lived in my area that had health issues. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't especially active on social media. I had a Facebook page, but then I, my pain got so severe, so suddenly that I became desperate for resources. I literally was just writing on Facebook every day and on Twitter just saying, does anybody know what doctor should I go to? Like who I'm in so much pain. I'm isolated. I'm alone. I'm not able to drive. I can't go to the grocery store, you know, in kind of the blink of an eye, all of a sudden these symptoms caught on where I'm not able to walk and my family doesn't know how to deal with it because they haven't dealt with something like that before. Um, And so when I first started sharing online, I had a lot of people in my inner circle say, are you sure you should be sharing that with people? Like that's kind of personal talking about abdominal pain and going to the emergency room. And, you know, people think that you're attention seeking. And at that point I was just kind of like, F what they think I need help. Like I, I, I need community. And that's where the disability community, especially at first it was on Twitter, where I connected with them, but then on Instagram later, um, where they really, truly saved my life because I was in so much pain and they guided me to the right types of doctors. They had me ask the right questions. They had me pursue different treatments um, and they just provided community and support that I didn't have otherwise. So I'm, I'm always so incredibly grateful for that. 
Um, but I also have had some ups and downs where sometimes I still wonder, oh, should I share that much? And I dealt with that in law school a lot um, because as somebody who wanted to work in a field that's, you know, uber professional, um, you know, everybody wants to appear like the most qualified. I didn't want people to think that if they hired me as their lawyer, that I would have to miss court because I was sick. Um, And so I was battling all of these kind of, um, again, internalized ableism, but then also ableism that I was experiencing from professors or people that I knew. And ultimately, I just decided I want to be my own boss. And I know that when I'm representing a client, I will handle my disability in a way that best suits me, but also provides for the best interest of my client. Um, And I also reminded myself that non-disabled people get sick and go to the ER too. Non-disabled people, you know, deal with health issues too. Um, and so sometimes I think I, I was harder on myself in sharing certain things than I needed to be. And now I'm just open about all of it. I'm like, you can take. Oh yeah. Like, have you looked at my Instagram feed recently? I (laughs) love your Instagram feed. (laughs) Like it's all I do is share, but I agree with you. People have said to me the same thing. Like, should you share that? Is it too much? Why are you telling people this? Why are you talking about your, like, I'd be asked all the time and shitting yourself and all this stuff because people need to know what the emotional impact of all of this stuff is on a person. Right. Well, absolutely. And I, one of the, a couple of things that I love that you talk about too, that I hadn't considered um, was the idea of sex and disability and um, you know, the role of sex workers in that for many people, as well as, you know, when you are, relying on other people like care caregivers or care assistants um you know things like that that you know again I have my experience as a disabled woman um and I'm sure it's similar to yours in some ways but different to yours in some ways and so I think there's such I've gotten such value from connecting with people online that have different disabilities than me that can really get me to think about some of these things and I think you know, especially when you're open and raw people, I, for the most part, people, I think are accepting of that. There are always going to be some naysayers, but I just, learned, oh, yeah, especially I get, as I got older, it's like, screw it. <laughs> do you get, do you get the people on your feed that are like, just stay positive And you're like, huh. yes, like all the time. I could, and I want to, but like, I, and I know what you're trying to say is kind, but you're not doing that here. You're being dismissive of what I'm telling you. Exactly. I dealt with that a lot with people in my life when I first got sick, but then also still online. And I get a lot of messages like, you know, praying for you or have you tried this or that? And it's like, I know, again, like you said, most people mean well. But at this point, yeah, I've tried it all. Like, yeah, I had the kale. I tried the smoothie. Didn't work. (laughs) Like, not gonna gonna walk tomorrow. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, I want to shift gears entirely from what we just talked about and ask you a little bit about your relationship status and your, the the people in your life. Can you, yeah. you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So I am married uh, to a, a man. Um, I, his name is Eric and he's wonderful. And he, when I first got sick, I had been in a relationship for four years. I was still very young, although I felt older than I was at the time. Um, but I've been in a relationship for four years. I was living with that guy at the time. And then I got sick 
and he really did not want to stick around for that journey. Um, oh, wow. Not surprising. Yeah, so it was terrible. Um, and he would openly refer to me as this huge burden. Um, openly? Openly, like at his family dinners where I was sitting right next to him. <sighs> and he, um, every time I had to go to the hospital, he wouldn't go with me. So I'd have to follow the paramedics. He wouldn't drive me to the hospital. He, and just, they would, would, he just wouldn't go with you? No, he didn't want to miss watching the hockey game. So on TV, so I had paramedics literally coming into my apartment at the time, walking past my then boyfriend on the couch, watching TV and be like, oh, she's back there. And then they're carting me out and he just stays. And at the time I was like, this guy's an asshole. I know I'm going to leave him, but I'm too sick to deal with it right now. And I couldn't fathom trying to move out of the apartment while I was sick. And then it got worse and worse and worse. And he really um, got out of control to the point where I was like, this is unhealthy. I think I'm in a bad situation here. Um, and so I literally took my dog and left in the middle of the night and left all my stuff at the apartment. My parents went and got my stuff later on, but I never went back. And then I was like, I am just going to focus on my health for a while. And I went to grad school. I was living alone, which was very difficult at that time because of my health. Like I said, I wasn't able to like drive to the grocery store and things like that. And yeah. there wasn't like an Uber Eats or anything back then. Or like Instacart or any of that stuff. Right. And so I was trying to figure it out. But I had a solid two years really where I was refiguring myself out again. I was finding the right doctors. I was having all these surgeries. And going to grad school and like really learning about what my future could be like with disability, because this guy that I dated had really kind of tainted my mind to think that my life was over now that I was sick, you know? And so I'm so grateful that I had that time where I was single and I just didn't date anybody and I just found myself again. And then, you know, kind of when I wasn't looking for it, I had reconnected with this girl I knew from high school who was dating somebody who is my now husband's best friend so I met him kind of socially um and we had started dating about a year after we met so he knew about my disabilities before we started dating which I think was really helpful um and I didn't have to like explain everything at the start of the date you know but he knew from the beginning that like I probably wouldn't be able to have kids I would probably need, you know, surgeries every now and then I would have to have doctor's appointments. And he's been very, very supportive. And at the first, he didn't know any of this stuff. Like he didn't know, know about what interstitial cystitis is um, or endometriosis. I didn't know about what it was until right very now. So that's also, yeah. Right. So it was, you know, but the thing is not only my husband, but his family were really, really open to like learning about my dietary restrictions and not making me feel bad about those. And, um, you know, it's just been such a, at first it was a relief, but now it's been really empowering because like never once has he ever treated me like a burden, like my ex did. And my husband now he like all the time I'll hear him like when he's working in the other room, cause he's working from home. I'll hear him like bragging about me to his boss. Like, Oh yeah, my wife started her own law firm. And so it's just like Oh wow. It's it's just been it's very nice. And we've been together for like six, almost seven years um now. But it's just um, you know, and of course, like we 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 have arguments, like we're it's not like a no couple is perfect, but um but I, I will say that I didn't 10 years ago think that it would be possible to be in a relationship 
like this, you know? And so I, I'm very happy about it. And he's also very understanding about, I mean, he knows everything about catheters. He's been in the hospital when I'm super sick and he like helps me with my bladder treatments where I'm like, using catheters and he's like oh here are the meds like now you dump it in the catheter and no like, like i can't tell you how hot it would be if some dude was like <laughs> andrew i want to go on a date with you also i think you're really hot also if you need a catheter treatment and you're gonna pee or you, you need to do that i'm there for you like that is one of my biggest fears of my life is that i'll need to pee or something or i'll need something and the guy that i'm with whether we're fucking or whether we're like you know a couple he won't know what to do and I'll have to be like oh okay well I guess it's over now like so the fact that your partner does this for you I mean and not to like pat him on the back about what a great human he is too much because you're the one going through it but like right to to have the comfort of someone that you love and trust doing that for you it's a big deal when we're disabled to have that it's a huge deal and even with like you know I mean I don't talk about this a lot publicly but even with like intimacy it makes such a difference because you, when you're disabled, especially if you have chronic pain or you use catheters, you have to sometimes be very methodical about, you know, positioning and pain and when Mm -hmm. you get intimate and when you shouldn't. And, you know, my, my ex essentially was like, well, if I can't, you know, have sex with you every day, then bye, you know? Wow. Um, He sounds like a keeper. Wow. Oh yeah. He was horrible. And, And I will say to my family's credit, they like hated this guy. And I just didn't listen to them at the time. Um, but, but it's just, you know, I that's why I spent two years being single because I was like, who's going to want to date me? And then as time went on, I'm like, anybody would want to date me. Like, I'm, I, I'm a grad student. I'm going to do this and that. Like, you know, and so, um, and I will also say, like, I, I think my husband's very attractive too. And I think sometimes I've heard disabled people be like, should I don't, should I settle? Like, I feel like I, I am not attracted to this person, but I'm not getting a lot of other opportunities. And I'm like, don't settle, you know, put yourself out there. Certainly give somebody a shot, you know, if you yeah. want to, but, um, you know, I, like you said, there's no like perfect partner in the world, but I do think that it's possible to find your person if you want to look for them. Um, and I'm just so, so grateful that I like, didn't give up. <laughs> I- I mean, and I'm, I'm glad you didn't too. And I, I just can't, I keep going back to how cool it is that you have a partner that can literally help you go pee if you need to. I would, right? I would die if somebody that I was with, that I really was attracted to was like, oh, you need help with that? Let me figure it out for you. And like, right. to not have the fear on that would, I could just relax. Like that's. It's, it's such a huge thing that a lot of people don't think about, but it's, it's so funny because he's so, like, it's so normal to him. And it was always, like, as soon as I told him, oh, yeah, I use catheters, it's like, oh, okay. Like, it was, like, not a big deal. Like, he wasn't like, oh, my God, really? But then, um, like, we went to a wedding. A friend of his had a wedding, you know, maybe, like, a year after we started dating. And I walk up to the table, and my husband, Eric, was talking to his friend. He's like, oh, yeah, you know. Ashley like did you bring your catheters or whatever like it's just so like second nature to him and his friends were like what like gather like he just like it was like the most normal thing in the world and I was like oh yeah and his friends were like wait she uses catheters it's like yeah like it was just like the most normal thing and I was like yeah hey. like what yeah I was like maybe and, you don't and... need to tell everybody like these strangers that I just meet but like I appreciate <laughs> that it's so normal to you 
but also like it's so cute that you that he's just like yeah whatever move on like next question uh-huh yeah right yep. well and it's even like it's like little things like um my when my pain's really bad one of the things that I do is like you know I'll take a bath and after a long day of work I have like a really consistent nighttime routine to help manage my pain um and my bladder symptoms throughout the night and so I'll take a bath with like Epsom salt I'll take my meds and I just have to like really physically allow my body to unwind after a long day of working. And so he'll like bring my dinner into the bathroom for me, like while I'm in the bathtub so I can eat and stuff. And so it's just like the little things like that. And of course, he'll be like the first to tell anybody about all the things that I do for him too. Like, it's not just like this one-sided relationship. But yeah, yeah. It just does really make a difference to know that there are people out there that it's like, okay, yeah, you have a disability all right, next. Like they, you know, it's not like this huge monumental disclosure moment, you know? Yeah. I mean, and for so many of us with disabilities, we, myself included, me especially, you know, we make it this big monumental moment because we're taught that it's supposed to be. So when somebody says to us like, oh yeah, you have a disability, no big deal. And we go, what do you mean you just glossed over that? Like, why aren't we talking about all the hard stuff? And I I don't care. I like you. Like, all right, move on. Like that's a shock. That can be a right. big shock. Yeah. And I think for me too, especially in the beginning, um, being like a cisgendered woman, like I, there, there's a lot of emphasis on like childbearing. And I knew that I would deal with infertility before I dated my now husband. And then recently um, I had a hysterectomy during a surgery that um, it wasn't like a, sh- a sure thing that I would get the hysterectomy during the surgery. Um, but I'm okay with it because it has helped my symptoms a lot. Um, But from the beginning of when we started dating, that was always something I thought I had to like, like I owed the person that I was starting to date to tell them, by the way, like, you know, I can't have kids. Are you still down to pursue this thing with me? And then I realized like, one, like, that's wild that I would just bring that up to people in the beginning. But two, like with the right person, like again, with my husband, he's like, "Oh, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, I think we're conditioned to like, feel like, again, like, like so our much shame about it's a bad thing. Like I do the same thing on dates. Like I'm going on it, but I'm the t- at the time of this recording, by the time it comes out, the date will have totally happened, but I'm going on a date with somebody on Friday who's also disabled and the amount of, we're both disabled. We're both wheelchair users. And I have continued to be like, so, you know, I need help, right? Like, you know, I need assistance. Like, is there anything right. like I, I keep I keep giving him an out because I'm like what yes. how, what point do you want to like be done with this? He's like I'm not gonna it's fine I'm not going anywhere it's fine oh. and I keep being like what do you mean it's fine I, like no it isn't he's like it's right. all right don't worry yeah oh that's so great I I'm, I hope that it goes well I mean the thing is it's true like you you have such value and you bring value to the relationship that I think sometimes it's easy for us to gloss over that because of the way that we've been conditioned to feel about our disabilities. Um, But I mean, it's just, it's true that, you know, we often view ourselves one way and we assume that other people view us in that same way. And that's not necessarily the case, especially when it comes to our disabilities. And then it's our job to make them feel better from the job, but our whole our whole relationship with them is to be I'm going to teach you and I'm going to make sure you're okay and if you're not okay then I will change my behavior because clearly I'm the problem like we do it all the time and I do it all the time with men that I like 
And I attribute it to, well, you must not like me because I'm disabled. So what do I do to make it better? And I'm constantly right. having to remind myself, it's not, maybe this has something to do with you or your disability. Right. Yeah, it could be just, you know, and I say to people all the time to like keep my friends and, and family members that are dating, um, you know, in the dating world, it's like, you can go on a date with a person, they can be a good person, but just not your person, you know? And so I think sometimes in the disability community, we also hold ourselves to a different standard than the non-disabled do. And we expect ourselves to like always say the perfect thing to overcome our disabilities to, for the whole disability community to all be on the same page about, you know, person first language versus identity first language. And those are important discussions, but we also need to allow ourselves the same opportunity to have conversations and disagree as the non-disabled do, you know, like we we hold ourselves to such a high standard. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with that part more. Like, again, have you seen my Instagram feed? I say stuff that people are like, oh, no, I totally don't agree with this here. And it's like, and then they get so angry. And I'm like, I'm not trying to fight with you. I'm literally trying to say, let's have a conversation. Like, right. my whole job as a disability awareness consultant is to be like, I want to make people aware of stuff. And I want to make people aware of my thoughts. Doesn't mean they're always right. But we don't have to, I, And you, like, on the forum, you mentioned, like, policing uh, of the disability community and I think sometimes in the disability community we have to stop policing ourselves so hard like yeah let disabled people have different opinions that's okay too totally and I think you know there are some things where it's like there can be a clear right and wrong um, but in a lot of things especially when it comes to the way we identify the way that we see ourselves within the disability community and outside of it there's room for flexibility in a lot of those things. And I know when I first acquired disability, I was going through grad school and I was told person first language is the thing to do. Like that's what, that's what you're supposed to do. So you say, I'm a woman living with physical disability. And so for many years, that's what I did. And then as I learned more about identity first language, I tend to use that more, but I also still understand that there are some people in the disability community that still like to use person first language and that's okay. You know, and so I think we can allow ourselves to evolve and have some fluidity on some things while still focusing on moving the disability community forward. Yeah, and I would say the same thing for our non-disabled allies who are trying to learn. I know, and I've said this before, I know people who will use the term special needs or like handicapped or like differently able. I've heard all those terms. And so what I try to do as a disabled person now Five years ago, I would have been like, "Well, fuck you! All those terms are horrible. How dare you?" Now, right. now I'm kind of, I'm kind of like, "Let me listen to how you're using it. How are you trying to to connect with me here? Are you trying to be malicious? Oh no, cool. Then use the term, but let me guide you in this direction for the next right. time." Yeah, and I think that's more. I've I've learned that over the years too. When it comes to like my advocacy work, and especially like when you go into like consult with whether it's a police department or a business or, you know, anywhere really like calling people in versus calling them out can be so much more effective and saying, I hear you. I understand what, what your intention is with what you said. Here's my perspective on that. And this is the history that's backing up my perspective. Um, And I would love for you to consider that can be often so much more effective than saying you're wrong. Never do that again. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you're an ableist, fuck you, like, don't, how dare you? Right. Because we hear that a lot in the disability community, and I think that's just, 
I've said it so many times in the show. I think it's so painfully dismissive because like you could have a chance to change somebody's world mind right there. Speaking of calling people in, my last, my last, last question for you, Ashley, is how do we call the legal, the legal profession into disability justice? How do we call them in instead of calling them out? It sounds crass, but the best thing we can do to call them in is to address the idea that they can't make any money by serving the disability community. So often I hear lawyers say, well, I don't want to do anything involving disability because disability lawyers don't make any money. And unfortunately, lawyers have a lot of student loans that they need to pay off. And so they dismiss any type of advocacy, any type of services that work with anyone with a disability. And so one of the things we can do with the legal profession is raise awareness. And that's something that I'm actively doing about how disability infiltrates every area of law, whether it's family law, dealing with child custody issues, parenting time, um, whether it's the criminal law system dealing with wrongful convictions because disability symptoms were taken as symptoms of guilt rather than what they were as symptoms of disability um, or you know, truly any area of law is affected by disability because people with disabilities have the same legal issues as everyone else plus more when it comes to things like benefits and asset protection and equality and all of that. So I think addressing the fact that one, disability services can be provided in every area of the law, but two, really changing their understanding, lawyers, judges, um, caseworkers of what a disability is. So often yeah. I still hear people saying, oh, well, they're not in a wheelchair. Or there's, there's a lot more awareness right now of like, oh yeah, no, he's autistic. Um, but, but if they don't have autism or use a wheelchair, so many lawyers still don't think the person has a disability, you know? And so if you don't, if you're not able to identify when your client has a disability, how are you supposed to advise them of their rights in any setting? So I think there needs to be a lot of education in law schools about that. Um, but also with like bar associations, and we need to get more disabled lawyers in the profession. And we can only do that by making law school and the bar exam more accessible um, because there are just so many unnecessary barriers right now. And when it comes to disability justice, that, again, as you know, addressing the disability justice movement in a meaningful way will benefit everybody disabled or not. And so that's the best thing that we can emphasize with the legal profession to also implement policy change, those long-term changes that can make such a difference, especially when it comes to like marriage equality and things like that. Again, we could sit and do a whole, we should like, we could have our own podcast all about this for like- I would love that. It's, <laughs> it's a whole series. We should seriously talk about it because I have yeah. a podcast network. I'm looking for more people to do stuff. We should- <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I'm down. Seriously talk about that. That'd be so fun. Uh um, do you have anything else that you want to chat about today? You know, I don't think so. It's just been so great talking with you. I feel like I've just been blabbing on and on, but um, I, I'm just such a huge fan of yours and I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really, I love having, and this is such a cool thing because I studied the law. So it was nice to like yeah. go back into my legalese a little bit and be like, oh yeah, the law, cool. So it was, it was nice to do that. Um, and thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your story and so happy to have you on today. Yeah, thank um, you so much. How can the people who want to 
follow Legally Able and follow you and find out more about what you do and maybe maybe hire you as their lawyer? How do they get a hold of you? Yeah, so um, I my Instagram page and my TikTok page are Ashley B. Jacobson. So that's A-S-H-L-E-Y-B-J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N. And then um, my law firm's website is jlaplc.com. And then my consulting firm is where I can provide kind of nationwide counseling and consulting. And I can do like accommodations assessments and stuff through that. That's called adaptive inclusion. And that's on like every social media site. Adaptive inclusion is the handle. And so um, if people want to message me, I will always keep it confidential. If I can't help you, I will find somebody who can, who's like vetted and actually knows what they're doing. Um, but yeah, and if they want to be in the legal field, just reach out to me. You can join the Legally Abled Mentorship Program. That sounds like super cool. And I'm so happy you're doing that because we need more of this and it's not happening enough. And so I'm just really excited that that's happening. And I'm, I'm so glad we had to chat today. But Ashley Jacobson, thank you so much for coming on. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark in the books. Thank you so much for making this episode comfy, cozy, and crippled. And I hope you enjoyed sitting down with your favorite disabled person on the internet and talking all things disability. Thank you so much for being here. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to my website, andrewgerza.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at andrewgerza1. If you want to be on the show, you can, of course, email us at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com with your disability story. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to support Disability After Dark, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month up to $5 a month or more, or even a yearly amount if that works for your budget. We at Disability After Dark, me, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for supporting this show and Crippled Co. and all the things we do. And tune in next week when we shine a light on another disability story right here on Disability After Dark. Bye, friends! Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Crippling Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2022